0: On this episode of This Week in Linux, we've got a lot of distro news from Ubuntu, Solus, Fedora, Linux Lite, and more. We'll take a look at some updates from the Linux 4.16 development. And Have you ever wanted to use Linux as your bootloader? Well, that might be possible in the future. For a nice change of pace from Oracle, we've got good news. Empirism released a progress report on the Librem 5. I'll also show you how you can watch Netflix content in full HD 1080p. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital, and this is your weekly source for Linux Good News. LibreOffice and the Document Foundation are celebrating their sixth anniversary this week. The Document Foundation was established on February 17th, 2012 pretty much because Oracle decided to ruin OpenOffice. And also celebrating this week is the six, LibreOffice 6.0 has reached 1 million downloads since the release, which was only a couple weeks ago, so that is pretty awesome. Congratulations to LibreOffice and the Document Foundation for being around for six years and thriving. And also, thank you. Up next in the show is updates for Linux music players. First is Nuclear. It's an electron-based application and it kind of has like a Spotify-like interface. Looks pretty nice. The this is a cloud-based streaming player. They they have plans to work to add local files as well, but right now it's a cloud-based thing that allows you to search and play music from YouTube, Bandcamp, SoundCloud, and some more. It also offers scrobbling to Last.fm for the like what you're listening to at the time and many more features. The, the thing that's actually really exciting for me about this is that they're working on uh, a new plugin in system and also making it possible so that you can uh, have your own custom like HTTP, FTP server or something, some kind of protocol that allows you to have your own custom server to play music from wherever. And that's pretty cool. Then next up in the music player section, we have Tiz- Tizonia. I would have said Tizonia up first, but the... Colors, I, I don't know, Tizonia, 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 I don't know. It's also a cloud-based music player, but this was one for your the command line. So this is, this is pretty cool. It's open source command line music player for cloud-based services. Although it does support playing local files, it seems to be focused on the cloud-based stuff anyway. So it has support for Spotify, Google Play Music, YouTube, and SoundCloud. And with their latest release of 0.12.0, They've added count, uh, Chromecast support to support that, which supports Google Play Music, YouTube, SoundCloud, and your uh, standalone HTTP radio stations. They also have plans to allow for you to cast Spotify and local media in the future. And finally, in the music players of the week, Amarok got some news that they're porting to Frameworks Five. So Amarok is coming to plasma five and frameworks five so this has been a quite a it's been a little while since Amarog had some attention so it's pretty cool that it's getting it back uh now they're going to be like essentially three competing music players for the kde stack so that'll be interesting i don't think i've actually said how long it's going to be until this is going to be ready but it'll be probably a couple months or so so anyway check out nuclear and tizonia if you like and uh mark your calendar for some time this year, for Amarok, I got some good news for some the Netflix users out there. If you haven't noticed, that you might be watching Netflix at a 720p rather than a 1080p quality, and that's because for some reason Netflix doesn't offer 1080p, even though it can. It just doesn't. So there's a workaround to make it to make it provide 1080p for Linux users, and because of this. Someone decided to make a Chrome extension that allows you to watch Netflix in 1080p on Linux. So that is awesome. Now, as an, as not a Chrome user, I prefer Firefox. Uh, thankfully, someone forked to that one and created a Firefox version. You can also watch it in Firefox if you like with this extension. And this is available. They are both available in the uh, add-on extension stores, like the Play Store, the web, the Chrome Web Store, and the uh, Mozilla Add-ons Market. So you can just go and install from there. without You don't have to use like the GitHub for that. So uh, the links will be in the video description for these. And I just wanted to say that I, I do like how uh, this the original developer of the uh, Chrome extension said, when asked why did he make it, his response was why not. So that's fair. I like it. Up next on the show is Linux 4.16 development news. Now, typically, we don't talk about development news for uh, kernels or most app- pretty much any application because it's it's not really con- uh, finalized. But they asked; they had they had some actual uh, information I wanted to talk about specifically for Meltdown Inspector. For example, they have um, tested it for like benchmarking, and the performance impact so far seems to be around six percent for the vast majority of things that it's affected but it only affects it in a big scale. So if you have like 50,000 system calls or something like that, then you'll see the effect. But if you're if you have a small you know just regular user uh, amount of resource usage, you're typically not going to notice anything at all. You might uh, every, every once in a while, but pretty much it's it's almost negligible to even, you know, worry about. So that's very nice to know. Like it, it, people were worried about, it was going to be like potentially up to 35% performance impact. And so far the maximum is about 17 and that's a very rare use case. So the average is around six to 7%. And that's really cool. So I'm glad to know that there, it's not as bad as people thought it was. I mean, it's still bad, but it's not as bad as people thought it, people thought it was as far as the impact comes, like the performance hit, the overall bug is still pretty awful but at least it's not as bad as it could have been and they are working on t- uh, on the, the patches to improve them and make them even more re- uh, performance uh, uh, improved so this is really good and i'm you know it's it's really great to see that the the import performance one not as bad as people thought it was going to be and two has potential to be improved even more so that's great in the intro i said that oracle has done something good for a change you know uh, and that is that they have open-sourced, or technically more open-sourced, I suppose, the D-Trace for Linux utility into a GPL license and a UPL license. So like a combination license. Which is really cool, because it used to be CDDL. And while that's technically an open-source license, it has it had potential for conflicting aspects to GPL. So there was... Un, there was issues of whether it could be included like mainline or not because of that. But with the GPL relicensing, it's really great because it allows it for it to be more like a proper Linux kernel module and potentially included in mainline kernel. So that's that's really good. If you're not aware of what D trace is, it's basically for troubleshooting kernel and application problems on production systems in real time. So it's it is a powerful tool and it is really nice to have. So it's it's great to see that they've decided to switch it to a GPL so that it could be included in the kernel itself. Um, for a more like more detailed thing, the D Trace can do like a global overview of a running system. So like give you access to memory, CPU time, file system, and network resources information uh, used by any active process. It can also be more like fine tuned if you want. So it could give like a log of arguments and tell you which specific function is being called by an argument, as well as tell you like what processes are accessing a specific file in the system. Like you can go like really fine tuned. So it's a very good thing that dtrace is now GPL. So thanks Oracle. Um, hmm. I'm not sure if I've ever said that before. That. Hmm. Anyway. Yeah. Thanks Oracle. During this week, we had some news about the a USB attack vulnerability in KDE Plasma. Uh, specifically, it's about the whether you pl- when you plug in a thumb drive or flash drive, the device notifier could be tricked into doing and uh, executing commands, you know, which is you know not a good thing. But it has been a little bit blown up out of proportion as far as like various websites are claiming it's worse than it is. So for the reason why I'm saying it's not as bad, it's one it's it's been solved. It's this the advisory was just to say to update your system, which most people if you are, you know, using Plasma, you can you can do that because Plasma update's pretty quickly. So that's really not a problem as far as, you know, getting updates, but the reason why it's a little bit more blown out of proportion is it requires someone to have physical access to the computer. It requires them to have a flash drive or thumb drive partitioned as VFAT and for them to have um, a label that it can, that contains some characters and commands in the characters. So like for example these graves or the uh, dollar sign plus the parenthesis. So you could have this with touch B in this, in, included in the vo- volume name and that would allow you to execute arbitrary commands like touch B which would create a file in your home folder. Now that's not Good Te- absolutely that's that's a problem, but it's not it's it's such a specific problem that it's unlikely for it to be um, executed on any individual. So people acting like it was worse than it is you know it's not that bad. but it is it is bad and it needs to be updated and if you have an affected system, you should update because well, it potentially could be a problem. First up in distro news, is KDE Neon is hiding the Neon LTS edition for users uh, from the download page. Now you can still use the LTS edition, it's just not available on download page. So if you already have it installed you can still use it. It will still get updates and maintenance. As far as how long that will continue, we don't really know exactly, but based on the fact that Neon is is going to transition to 1804, uh, it could be not so long. It could be a few months or so before they decide to just completely get rid of it. Um, but this is a, this is an interesting thing because they were saying that the Plasma LTS version of user LTS is not really that actively maintained and updated by the developers. So it implies something that it's not like, because people look at LTS being, well, if Plasma LTS and and you know Ubuntu, on top of Ubuntu LTS, that would be like, you know, very stable and have a ton of attention they would make sure it's perfect, you know, that kind of thing. Well, they haven't really been doing that because that's not really the point of Neon. The point of Neon is to continuously get updates to the system for the KDE stack. That's their their the reason why they made Neon was to have a core stable base where KDE continues to roll. So having that LT Neon LTS user LTS thing is not really that um, effective for what they're trying to do with Neon in general. So it makes sense that they would get rid of it. Um, honestly, I was kind of confused when they made it in the first place, but um, it is it is, it is interesting that they've decided to do this. So it implies that in the future there probably won't be a Plasma LTS on Neon. So when they switch to 1804 is, is my guess. I don't really know for sure, but that's my guess. Uh, I don't think this is that big of a deal because if you want plasma LTS and you want it on an on Ubuntu LTS you would just use Kubuntu LTS for example. Um, especially with like Kubuntu 18.04 having the same version that Neon will have at the time. So it, it kind of makes sense more to use Kubuntu in that sense if you want the the LTS for Plasma. Just let me know if in the comments below what you think about this this news. And um, whether you are, if you are a Plasma Neon LTS person, how are, are you going to upgrade to Neon uh, User Edition, or are you going to try to find another solution? I'd love to know. This week we got some news from IPFire with an update for IPFire 2.19-Core 118. This is a firewall uh, distribution for uh, based on Linux. If you have, uh, if you have heard of PFSense that's a firewall distribution based on BSD kernel, and IPFire is like an alternative based on Linux. So this is a really cool uh, distribution if you want to like host your own firewall, uh, you know, provide control your own firewall implementation. Now the reason I'm bringing up this update is because they've introduced uh, support for the fixes of Meltdown inspector patching, and they've decided to remove PHP entirely from their distribution. Now PHP is a really interesting language and it's really powerful but it's not really necessary for a firewall distribution to have because PHP introduces like a lot of headaches to manage it because it is very powerful and very flexible but it also has because of that power and flexibility it has uh, a lot of headaches to deal with they decided to just completely remove it so that's that's pretty interesting and if you're interested in like having your own open source firewall implementation, and you want to use Linux, then check out IP Fire. Up next in the show is the Canonical Corner. Uh, First up, they're going to be like collecting... uh, Well, they haven't really said specifically guaranteed that they would be doing this. This is just a proposal right now. And I think it's a good idea because it's beneficial to um, the community as a whole. And I'll get to that in a second. But first, what they're going to be doing is collecting information about the installation and about you know sometimes about update like when you have a bug report, it'll it'll keep keep track of that information as well. But what they, the 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 idea is that through HTTPS, they're going to send data from your computer to their computer so they can have information about how you inst- like what your installation is. So like your hardware information, for example, like your CPU, your RAM, uh, your OEM. Like for example, like if you have a Dell laptop or Lenovo, they will know it's like a Dell or it's a Lenovo. Then they're also gonna be tracking like what Ubuntu version you installed, what flavor of Ubuntu that you installed, like Kubuntu, Lubuntu, Zubuntu, etc. Also, the the thing that's really that's really getting people like bothered by is the the location claim that people are saying. Now it's not an IP or anything; it's not specific. It's just country. So like the country you installed the system in. Now this is this is based on the IP, but it's a very broad information about the about it. I think the location is where people get bothered by it mostly, but it's not as bad as people are making it out to be. There are other things like auto login enabled or or not when you install it, and you know there's the install time, uh, how long it took to install the duration. I mean. Uh, things like that, and there's also going to be some stuff where if if you've ever used a in the past, when you when you see, get a, a bug, a crash of some kind in a there's thing that pops up and says, "Would you like to send a report?" And when you click yes, you have no idea what happened. Like there's no information about whether you actually sent anything or what you sent or whatever, or if it even sent. You know, there's really no way to tell. And sometimes it didn't even send anything, but in this case, they're going to add apport to be configured automatically to send crash reports. And it would be anonymous, of course. But So it wouldn't tell you, hey, pop up, you got a crash. It would just say, oh, there's a crash. Here's what happened. Here's the information. Here's stuff that is relevant to the crash. Things like that. So overall, this is potentially good for both Ubuntu and all the flavors as well as everyone. And now why is it f- uh, potentially useful for everyone? They're going to be taking this information anonymously, of course, and they're going to aggregate it. And they're going to allow other people to look at it, anyone to look at it. It would be transparent data provided by Canonical for everyone. So this is potentially really good information for other distro developers, for for application developers, for just the ecosystem in general, to know how many people are actually installing Ubuntu, what kind of hardware people have, like how many AMD users are there, how many Intel users are there you know how, how like how many people use high dpi screens versus not all these different things It's potentially a lot of good useful information that could be helpful for everyone as long, but but the, the idea like when they first announced it, it was like okay this is going to be you know this is going to be a mess but once they said that they was going to be transparent and the information to be available to anyone that made me actually excited because that has a lot of potential to solve one of the biggest problems that we have as an ecosystem of when people say how many people use Linux? And your response is I don't know. It's a lot, but I don't know. Like that's that's a hard sell to people when you're like, there's no way for us to tell you because there's no tracking information being done. Now there are a couple of distros that do provide information, but they're obscure distros that don't typically have a ton of users. Ubuntu is not only arguably guaranteed the most popular distro ever, especially if you count all the flavors. So this information is potentially like game changing for but like because it's it's transparent, like that is actually good. Now, the only bad thing would be is like if the data was found to be like a lot of old hardware and people not upgrading, I mean that I guess that could be a negative to some people. but overall, that's not really a, I don't think that'd be a big deal. I think the while it it could show how many people use on old hardware versus new, because you know the whole, Claim that people say that Linux is great for old hardware, yeah, but it's also great for new hardware. So it's you know that's a weird claim to make. Uh, so let we can even see how many people use old hardware versus new hardware. That that would be good to know as well. You know how many people use 32-bit versus 64-bit. You know everybody's transitioning away from like oh not everybody but a lot of distros are transitioning away from 32-bit. We'd actually get an, a you know good information about how to do this, and if this is done well with you know open source transparent data other distros could adopt the system to do it and then we could get even more data to provide even more information and improve this the ecosystem even more that's that is potentially fantastic so it depends on how this really um, how this ends up you know how they build the system how reliable that system is overall this this could be really good for everyone even though I know a lot of people will instantly hate it because it's not opt-in, it's opt-out. But I don't know. Let me know what you think in the comments below. I'd love to know whether you think this is a good idea or a bad idea, especially with the potential for the entire ecosystem benefiting. Yeah, just let me know in the comments below. I'd love to know what you think. Up next in the canonical corner is Mir. 0.30 was released this week. The, the vast majority of it is it's just basically an improvement for Wayland So this is this is really good and they've uh, I'm pretty sure they also said they're going to have they've already hired some a new developer for Mir so they're, they're push they're continuing to push the the improvements as well. They also announced this week that there is potential for minimal installer of Ubuntu. Now this is not like a changing the installer this should be just like you know whether you want to have a minimal install rather than the full install. So the minimal install implies that they would just remove applications that are not necessary for everyone. So, for example, default applications like Rhythmbox or Thunderbird that not everybody wants to use, and maybe they just want to use their own choices. Like maybe I don't, don't want to use Rhythmbox. I want to use Quadlibet or Clementine or whatever. So this makes it possible so that you could say, I want a slimmed-down version of Ubuntu, and then I'll install the applications I want to install. So that's a pretty cool approach and hopefully the other the other if they do this the other flavors will con, will consider this as well and maybe even, you know, other distros. I know some distros already do this, but it'd be cool to see a lot more. And next up in the canonical corner is the 16.04.4 release of Ubuntu is set to release on 1st of March. Now this is this is the release we talked about being held back because of the melt meltdown specter patches. So this is like they've announced that this is be this will be the full release of that uh, maintenance release for the 1604 LTS. This we got an update for Linux Lite 3.8, which is the final release of the 30 the 3.0 series or 3.x x series of Linux Lite. It comes with some nice uh, updates for laptop power management. And, um, you know, this is actually one of those distros earlier I talked about, the you know, the potential of what distros provide 64-bit and 32-bit. This is one of them that does provide 32-bit as well. So if you are a laptop user, you might be interested in having the, T- the TLP power management tools being included. You also get uh, better support for LibreOffice, um, like getting the newer version, I suppose. Then you also have a new font viewer and installer. And a lot of interesting things, like they have uh, Light Tweaks, or Linux Light Tweaks, basically. Uh, light Welcome. Uh, you know, this is like a welcome screen that a lot of distros are doing now. I think that was, in, like, either it was at least popularized. It might not have been like created or started by Ubuntu Monte, but it was definitely popularized by Ubuntu Monte. Uh, they, have, uh, they have a new Upgrade in Wallpapers th- tool, and they've made some um, improvements to uh Xfce 4 implementation. Uh, overall, it's, it's a nice, um, a nice update. And this, the the next the release will be um, uh, June 1st, 2018. And this will be the Linux, be Linux Lite 4.0. So this is the final release of the 3x series. And in June, they're going to have a three, a 4.0 series, which will be based on Ubuntu 18.04 LTS. We got some updates this week from Solus Project. The updates are regarding the Solus 4 release. Linux 4.15 will be included in the update. A revamped software center will include the latest Linux driver management we talked about a couple weeks ago that uh, Solus Project has created uh, for better hardware driver support. Then you have uh, hot spot support uh, for like you know uh, turning your sharing networking connections and stuff like that. They're going to have support for Budgie ten point four point one, which is a maintenance point release, and Mate one point twenty, which is a big release for Mate. You can already use these Mate one point twenty in Solus if you want, but this is like this will be included in the Solus four update as well. Uh, experimental Wayland session for the uh, GNOME GNOME edition, and Solus devs have decided to delay the Snap D integration. Uh, for Solus 4 so it won't it won't be included in Solus 4 but in a future release it will be i'm definitely looking forward to playing with the uh, linux driver management a more finished product you know the full distro ecosystem of it so that will be interesting zevenet or ziv not sure 5.0 community edition was released this week and if you're not aware uh, zevenet or ziv something something is an open source load balancer for providing high availability and content switching services. Now this is mostly for like sysadmins and things like that. So if you're not that, I understand you might not care about this, but uh, for those who are sysadmins, let me know what your opinion of it is. And I'll give you some some basics about what this does. Uh, It allows you to have like session persistence over HTTPS and HTTP, um, virtual host, uh, redirections, uh, cookie insertion, reverse proxying. Um, it also has ability to do like health checks for servers and services, and traffic scalability and distribution by uh, CPU load, memory, usage, uh, the amount of like connection throughput needed, like a, a lot of different features. So if you are if you are a sys admin and you are interested in checking out an open source load balancer, let me know. What's really interesting, I think, about is that they have, like, you can do load balancing inside of a Docker container, so that, that's kind of weird, but still interesting, and if you do try it, let me know. I would love to know what your opinion of if this particular distro is, so Zivinet, Zivnet, I'm five 5.0 Community Edition. Before we continue with the show, uh, next up is the Linux gaming news, and I wanted to address the question I asked of last week, was whether you'd want a spinoff of the gaming thing, uh, the gaming news. What was interesting to me is that I had responses from both people who are gamers and not gamers, both asking for spinoff because the gamers want to have more content for the gaming and the non-gamers want to have more non-gaming content in the main show. So I thought that was pretty funny and I wanted to just, uh, Say if you still want to have you know provide some your your input on whether there should be a gaming news show separate from this main show, uh, feel, please do so in the comments below. Um, the next segment is gaming because I haven't really decided whether I want to do it or not uh, because it will add a lot of extra time for me to do. But uh, this, if you so if you are not gaming uh, not a gaming fan, you still might want to talk like watch these because they're not. Specific, well, two of them are not, like, game-specific. They are, like, well, I'll just go ahead and tell you, one's wine-based and one's a cool hacking thing. So, anyway, let's get to the gaming news. This week, the Wine Staging Project posted a notice that they're, that they're talking about the future of wine staging, that they don't really have time to work on the Wine Staging Project and have decided to discontinue their involvement in it. Now, a lot of people have confused wine staging with wine and that is definitely not the thing like this is a subset, like this is a, a side project based on wine called wine staging. And what they do is take the development part of wine and then make some changes to make it more uh, compatible with certain types of things like gaming and stuff like that. So this is more like saying that the, the creators or the, uh, I think that the the project you might have heard of it when they they first created the wine stadium was first made because of the Pipelite thing that was created where they made it so that you could use um, the Pipelite, flash and silverlight um, tools back in the, a couple for Netflix stuff like that back in the day for like a couple few years ago where it was a lot harder to use Netflix than it is now. But they've since then they transitioned to start doing work on Wine overall itself because they needed a separate version of Wine to do patches and things so that they could have pipelight work. Now, th- once pipelight was no longer really necessary, they just decided to just start using, uh, cre- working on Wine staging itself. Unfortunately, they've lo- they've no- lost a lot of their time, like free time, to work on it. So they decided to just uh, discontinue their involvement. Now, this is somewhat negative, and the people, you know, and think that like, oh, this might be like the end of Wine staging, but it actually might not, because there's already a fork of Wine staging on GitHub, and it definitely doesn't have any effect to Wine itself. So, yeah. Though, th- this is interesting, but it's not really a reason to be concerned, because it's already been forked, and the um, one of the main developers of Wine has made a comment about this, and that they are considering you know working with the new fork to see if they can you know make sure that the the wine staging project doesn't end so that's good news it's you know a little bit of bad news followed by some pretty good news so yeah last week we talked about the Nintendo Switch being hacked to run Linux and they just showed the kernel booting and things like that but now we have even more information about how it worked and a demonstration of KDE Plasma running on top of the Nintendo Switch. That's really cool. And what's even more interesting is that the touch functionality of the Switch works very well with KDE Plasma. Like I, or Linux in general, I, I was surprised because it, it seems like something that was not intended to work on Linux. Uh, t- the touch as, uh, aspects of it work better than some laptops made to work with Linux. So that's a uh, kind of sad but also really interesting to see how it works and they've also gave more information about how the uh, exploit like it's it's a hardware exploit and what exactly that means in the video during the demonstration. So, I'm not going to display the I'm not going to play the video here because I want you to just go ahead and check out the link in the show notes so you can watch it directly on their Twitter account from Fail Overflow. This week we got some great news from the Feral Interactive team. They're going to be porting Rise of the Tomb Raider to Linux. So that's fantastic and the what if you haven't played tomb raider before it's a you know action adventure game um, third person action adventure it's been it's had like one of the longest running uh, franchises in gaming history uh, for the first few times of the game it came out it was amazing then they kind of had a falling off you know after the like you know halfway through a few like a few years ago but thankfully in 2013 they brought in a new Version of the Tomb Raider series that was act quite good, act really great, actually. And they, Feral Interactive, made that version for Linux a couple of years ago, and it's a, it was, it's really fun, and I can't wait to play the newest version of Rise of the Tomb Raider because it looks like the trailer and the uh, all the gameplay I've seen looks fantastic. It's just you know I'm a Linux gamer, so I haven't played it yet, but I am looking forward to it coming to Linux. Uh, they said this spring, so we don't really know exactly when. But hopefully, we'll get some new information in the future. And when we do, I'll let you know. Linux boot is a new project that is pretty interesting. It's the idea is to essentially make the instead of using a separate bootloader, you could effectively make Linux the bootloader. So it it makes a, it replaces the firmware of like a specific firmware functionality like UEFI Dxe, and uses. Linux, the Linux kernel and runtime as the firmware for like modern servers and stuff like that. Now it's, it's right now it's in its early stages. So it's basically just for servers, but it has potential to do even more in the future. So in theory, it could be possible that you may in the future use Linux to boot windows. I mean, it maybe it's, it's, it's definitely possible if Linux boot uh, picks up pace. So who knows? The 2018 Google Summer of Code organizations were announced this week. Uh, The Google Summer of Code is a global program focused on introducing students to open source software development. Students work on like a three-month programming project with an open source organization during their break from university, for example. The the Google Summer of Code was first started in 2005, and since then they've worked with over 13,000 students, 12,000 mentors, over 125 countries have been involved and they've produced over 33 million lines of code for 608 open source organizations throughout the years now this this I'm including this show because there's, there's a lot of relevant Linux related um, projects that were selected this year I'm just going to go through a quick list and if you wanting to know more about these projects or find the rest of the rest of the list. You can find the, the link to the, in the show notes below. So first up, we got Apache, Blender, Gnome Gnome, KDE, Xorg, Debian, Fedora, FFmpeg, Gentoo, Git, GNU, Godot, Inkscape, Jitsi, LibreOffice, Matrix.org, Mix, Moodle, Mozilla, OpenStreetMap, RocketChat, Linux Foundation, Cute, VLC, Wine, and Cody. There's actually a little, a few more that I missed. And there's some BSD stuff in there too as well. If you like that kind of thing. So Google Summer Code 2018. If you want to learn more, check out the link in the video description. This week we got a progress report from Purism for the Librem 5. They included vote photos of the PureOS running on a dev board as well as proof of the first SMS being sent through the D-Bus for the phone. They've shown that the separate baseband is working as specified. And they've also shown that the dev board is working on the iMX6 processor, but they're working on a... They are waiting for the next... Instead of waiting to do all the development once they get the new board of the iMX8, they are currently working on the, the iMX6 previous version. So when they have the iMX8 In you know, in their hands, they'll be showing development board for that. Uh, The next step is also they've said is making phone calls work. So that's cool. Um, They also have some information we they've provided like what the default desktop environment is going to be. Well, not really desktop environment, but the default environment being used for the future of the phone, and that is that they've decided we want to. This is a quote from the Purism team. At Purism, we want a unified default desktop environment, and considering that we have chosen GNOME to be the default on laptops, we hope to extend GNOME to also be the default on phones. Now, this is actually disappointing to me, because there is no mobile GNOME project from the GNOME team. And Purism even says this, that they were going to be the frontrunners for this thing. So instead they decided to choose something that doesn't exist that they have to make rather than stuff that already exists. That's just okay. Okay. Anyway, so they're gonna put more work on top of themselves to do something that people don't even expect that they can already they can even do in the first place. I, I hope do make a great product and they do make GNOME Gnome work on mobile. Because I you know I look forward to having this phone. I'll probably switch it out for Plasma Mobile anyway. But I do look forward to this phone, and I hope you know we get some more progress reports. And you know the the development is on track for the release in 2019. So we got some information this week about a zero day vulnerability in Telegram. Now they're using the uh, ROL Unicode method, which is a right to left override. This is pretty bad. They have found that this has been, this has been exploited, being ex- actively exploited since March of 2017 for cryptocurrency mining. Uh, they've, they've shown like some brief explanations about what it could be doing. So it's essentially can do anything. It could install whatever it wants. It just happened to be doing it for crypto mining. They've also found that it's possible to steal the local cash of any of, of the victims that they could just take whatever cache is inside of the telegram for that device. Uh, In theory, they could uh, install whatever they wanted and do even more based because it's a, it's a zero day. In other security news, that's not as depressing. Google Chrome HTTP sites are now going to be displaying not secure notifications. They'll have a little uh, symbol, the potentially dangerous symbol with the words, not secure in the address bar when you go to that website. Now, Firefox already indicates a website, whether it's HTTP or HTTPS, but they do it in a much more subtle way. So, for example, if you go to a website and it's not secure, you can click the little uh, informational button icon that's in the address bar, and then it'll tell you there that it's not secure. Now, that doesn't seem like it's enough, probably, to some people, but they also do something else so that if you go to a website that is not secure and there's a form that you start trying to fill out, Firefox will then have a little pop-up that says, are you sure you'd like to fill it out because this is not secure and you might not want to do it, but they only display that when you start to interact in that way with a not secure website. So that's one. It is, it's, it's more subtle. It's not in your face. So it's, it's a more gradual uh, notification. I like that. Uh, But I also see the benefits of what Chrome is doing, where they're going to change it uh, in July is where they announced in July 2018 is when they announced they're going to do this. They are going to put this in the address bar, which is going to have a bigger impact because it's in your face and it's not subtle like the way the Firefox does it. So I'm curious to see what happens with the developer world of websites. I'm actually involved in that world so there's probably going to be some potential of you know users being scared by this notification and contacting the, the website developers and trying to get them to switch to HTTPS so it's more secure or so that's not giving them that notification. Some people would argue that, you know, because of Let's Encrypt, it, it's, there's no reason not to have SSL, you know, HTTPS, but that's not necessarily true because there are some servers that don't make it easy to update your certificate and they even charge to include the certificate even if the certificate itself is free. So, like, there, there is some... It's, it's not as simple as Let's Encrypt exists. You should use it. That does make it a lot easier to do it, but there's still some more variables that make it more difficult but this is definitely going to be something that might make those hosting companies have to just you know accept more certificates because more and more people are going to be bothered by it and more and more developers are going to have to deal with that so who knows uh, i'm very much interested to in see what happens and hopefully one of the, this is like one of the stepping stones to make the internet you know more secure where everybody uses ssl because Really. It's a good thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thanks for watching this episode of this week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please hit that like button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel, you can become a patron by going to tuxdigital.com slash Patreon. Or you can order the Linux is everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is everywhere. Or if you don't want to type as much. You can go to Tuxdigital.com shirt. Just a reminder, the show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux GNUs each week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tunnell with Tux Digital, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.